Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS News. Schoolchildren from the Confederation of States rolled into the capital city today and didn't notice the ankle-high obelisk erected in honor of John Hansen, the nation's first president. Hansen's commemoration, obscured by a poorly tended azalea, is notable because he served first, but it goes largely unknown in a confederation with 230 presidents in its history, where the governors of New York and California determine national policy in a constant tug of war, with the legislature still struggling in the weak posture assigned to it by the amended Articles of Confederation. This fantasy school trip never happened and never will. For one thing, the Articles of Confederation would not likely have kept the country together for very long in their original form or as the amended articles. But one true thing does stand from that little fantasy. John Hansen legitimately holds the rank as the country's first president. His title sparkled, President of the United States in Congress Assembled. Now you can score bonus points in that obscure quiz night question or make people think you are a crashing bore by bringing Hansen up out of the blue at dinner. Hansen stood first in line of the eight gentlemen who held that title, President of the United States in Congress Assembled, under the Articles of Confederation. The office would be considered ceremonial by today's standards, sort of like the hood ornament of Congress. Accounts of Hansen's work list events that took place while he held the post, creation of the post office department and uniform system of coinage. But those accounts do not describe Hansen as wielding a steady directing hand on the tiller of state. Congress did the work. Still, Hansen whinged about the burden of office in a letter to his doctor. The load of business which I have very unwillingly and very imprudently taken on me, I am afraid will be more than my constitution will be able to bear. And the form and ceremony necessary to be observed by a president of Congress is to me extremely irksome. Moreover, I find my health declining, and the situation of my family requires my being at home. I shall therefore take the first opportunity of applying for leave of absence, this to yourself. I'm not certain, but I think this letter to his doctor is Hansen asking for a doctor's note to get out of school. The letter is also proof that the presidency has been a bummer from the word go, even when the job didn't require pardoning turkeys. In a sad coda to our somewhat overweening John Hansen lead, it's not even clear where our first president enjoys his final rest. A bulldozer clearing a forest fire in the early 1970s may have knocked over his gravestone or mausoleum in the Maryland field where he returned to dust, and no one put it back properly. What tootled Hansen off into obscurity concerns us in our third of a four- Yes, four, part series on the Constitutional Convention. The statue of the fellow considered our first president, George Washington, now glistens outside the Pennsylvania State House, now called Independence Hall, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Where inside, in the summer of 1787, they wrote General Washington's future job description, as David O. Stewart entertainingly puts it in his book, The Summer of 1787. The document that Washington and his successors have all promised to uphold was written in that building. 
And we'll have the third of the four chapters of this story about that event after a word from our sponsor. Our whistle stop today is March 4th, 2019, and Senator Rand Paul is quoting from Montesquieu on Twitter. When the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty. The Kentucky senator quoted Montesquieu not because he cuddles regularly with cocoa and dusty pocket-sized volumes of French philosophy, but because the founders modeled their affairs after Montesquieu's ideas. To find balance in a centralized government where power had to be collected to make progress, but not so much so that it trampled liberty, they turned to Baron de Montesquieu's The Spirit of Laws. It argued that any single form of government would lead to excesses. We've talked about the mob and the monarch, but the framers also worried about the elites. Pure aristocracy would lead to oligarchy. The aristocracy did have its boosters. John Jay said the people who own the country ought to govern it. And Roger Sherman of Connecticut preferred the aristocracy because the people, quote, should have as little to do as may be about the government since they want information, that is to say they lack it, and are constantly liable to be misled. The system of checks and balances centered around the idea of power, as Bernard Balin writes in The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. The founders described power as a cancer, or like the ocean, both rapacious, unstoppable forces, with, as Balin writes, an endlessly propulsive tendency to expand itself beyond legitimate boundaries. Years later, philosopher, logician, mathematician, historian, writer, essayist, social critic, and political activist Bertram Russell would also speak to the primacy of power. The fundamental concept in social science is power, in the same sense in which energy is the fundamental concept in physics. The holiday party guest who maunches and maunches scoop after scoop of bean dip mirrors the behavior of power. Liberty, on the other hand, looks at its toes like the wallflower at the edge of the room. Of these two, the founders, like the lead character in a John Hughes film, cared most about Liberty the Wallflower. We began with freedom, wrote Emerson, but how to protect Liberty, which, as John Adams put it, lived an endangered life, skulking about in corners, hunted and persecuted in all countries by cruel possession and interest. Madison, writing in Federalist 51, the collection of essays used to promote the Constitution after it was tidied up and sent to ratifying conventions in the states, put the problem this way. What is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by man over man, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. Montesquieu wrote the guide to creating those auxiliary precautions. The balance in this new government would come in three different ways. First, separation of powers between branches would prevent any one branch of government from acquiring too much authority. A strong chief executive represented action. Pirates show up at the border, the president can order the navy. 
if there is one, to confront them. The Senate represented property, the elites, the shopkeepers, and the landowners who made the economy go, and the House represented the larger population. These would, as the 18th century jurist Sir William Blackstone noted, mutually keep each other from exceeding their proper limits. The second of the three balancing mechanisms, there would be different methods for selecting the members of each of those branches. The people would directly elect the members of the House of Representatives, but the Senate made to cool those popular passions, would be chosen by fellow aristocrats in the state legislatures. The chief executive would be picked by wise electors who knew the job required two skills, character and judgment. How would they know this? Because they were elites who had worked in those same kinds of jobs and understood what the job required. The judiciary, that third branch, would interpret the laws, and it would be picked by the president, but he would not have sole power The Senate would confirm the president's nominations for judicial positions, and Congress could impeach any of those judges and remove them from office. The framers thought that this multifaceted selection system would give each institution a distinct constituency and different perspectives. By arranging the system this way, the framers were... They weren't just looking for each branch to limit the bad behavior of the others when it came to overstepping their bounds, but they believed they could harness the self-interest of each branch so that each branch would want to fight for their rights, and in fighting for their rights and in seizing what they wanted, those powers would be kept in constant tension and competition against each other. Then the third of the three balancing humors. A division of power between the federal and state governments would ensure that none of these three branches of government could claim that it alone represented the people. This whole idea of checks and balances is a testament to the fact that the founders believed in institutions and structures and the theory of balanced powers rested on that. The idea that political institutions and structures could guarantee liberty. Newton's laws of motion birthed the Enlightenment concept of a clockwork universe, parts put in motion, sometimes aligned to grind against each other or operate in tension, would keep the whole thing clicking. Driven by that design tension, but without needing the constant fiddling of the clockmaker. Now, these men, the founders, the framers, weren't lockstep believers in institutions. They were revisionists. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been in Philadelphia with the fresh sheets of parchment. But they believed that systems could be arranged and then tweaked if necessary, occasional visits to the clock shop, but that the system would lead to a common good. And the system worked like this. The people granted power in compact and mutual consent And that wound the clock. And then that government system, that clock, served in its running to protect the surrendered individual powers, the powers that people had surrendered in that act of mutual consent that set the clock going. John Adams compared the Constitution, which would create the system for an orderly government, not to a clock, but to a body. Said Adams, a frame, a scheme, a system, a combination of powers for a certain end, namely the good of the whole community. So when you hear people run down institutions and structures today, this initial faith in systems and institutions is worth keeping in mind. There are flaws in these systems, to be sure, and mindless adherence to antiquity allowed slavery, not just for it to continue without modification, but allowed it to even be inserted while they were creating a system that was supposed to be about protecting the rights of Americans. It also allowed the subjugation of women and other ills to endure. But institutions do also provide order. 
There is a method to the madness of their creation. These institutions carry with them the careful thinking and values of their creators into the present to guide and protect through their rules and operation the fundamental human values the founders were trying to care for and about which they thought so much. So if you're going to go scrapping those systems, you better make sure that you're doing so with those core values in mind and replacing them with equally substantive stuff. We will now turn our focus to the presidency. That's what we're here for anyway. But one quick detour on Rand Paul. He quoted Montesquieu to make the case against Donald Trump's emergency declaration to fund the southern border wall. Presidents shouldn't take power from Congress, was his point. Congress said no to the wall funding, and on an issue of spending where Congress has expressed its will, a president who acts against that will is breaking the rules, breaking the clock, a sprocket sproinging out into the shag carpet. But the ends justify the means, some might say. I'm a pro-border American. No, the framers would say, we put the system in place to guard against that very ends-justify-the-means argument. You think we hadn't heard that argument? We didn't have the internet, but we had thousands of years of human history from which to draw. And we didn't have the internet and Twitter distracting us. The ends-justify-the-means was not exactly a new argument, even in 1787, and those who have made it and based their societies on it can no longer sleep the sleep of the just in houses neatly arranged in those societies because those societies have collapsed and their rubble carted off to museums with high-priced entrance fees and complicated opening times. But the president was acting in an emergency, his supporters would say. We anticipated that too, the founders would say, and you'll learn about that in a few moments. Just listen to your whistle stop and it will save the republic. As of this taping, Paul only had the public support of a handful of his Republican colleagues. The poor showing would have shocked the founders into a rush for the polished snuff boxes. Congress should not march in thoughtless lockstep with the president, and vice versa. Governor Morris said at the Constitutional Convention, along with others, they argued that the president shouldn't be elected by the legislature because there shouldn't be any reason for the president to be beholden to Congress. Herbert Hoover, you'll remember, compared the Democratic Party to the Nazi Party when he charged Democrats with being a rubber stamp for FDR. You'll remember that they weren't rubber stamps at all, certainly not by today's standards, which is why FDR tried to purge the Democratic ranks in 1938. Still, Hoover thought the Democrats in Congress too close to their Democratic president. Today, the public fear about consolidation is only remembered in important but going on a bit too long asides in popular podcasts. In interviews I've done with former Senator Bob Corker and sitting Republican Senator John Kennedy, both explained how futile and career-damaging it is for a Republican to confront the Republican president. Republican-based voters will exact punishment on lawmakers if they cross the captain of their team. Now, back to the room in Philadelphia. James Madison had views on the legislature, but when it came to the executive, he wrote in a letter to Washington, he lacked the piercing mind of certainty. A national executive must also be provided— he wrote to Washington, I have scarcely ventured as yet to form my own opinion, either of the manner in which it ought to be constituted or of the authorities with which it ought to be clothed. Now, Madison might have been hiding the football, which is to say that he might have had plenty of views, but kept them under a bushel when writing to the man who might get the job. He dare not riff on what the position might be like to the one who might ultimately hold it. More broadly, the argument for a national executive had really yet to be completely determined. The only national journal in America at the time of 
of the Constitutional Convention was the American Museum, and it devoted its April 1787 issue to the Philadelphia meeting. A lead article depicted the nation as, quote, a headless body where the tremulous motion of the severed nerves is the only sign of remaining life. To solve the situation, the magazine recommended a chief executive for the country. None of our political articles supposed it possible to make a good constitution without placing a governor at the head. Yet when they united their talents to construct the federal machine, they left out the mainspring upon which the continuance of its motion must depend. There you see another mechanistic explanation of government. While the framers may have believed in a national government, that didn't mean they agreed on what cap should sit on top of it. Some framers thought the laws would be executed by the legislature itself without playing footsie with a monarch. If a president made sense, Roger Sherman of Connecticut argued, quote, the executive magistracy should, quote, be nothing more than an institution for carrying the will of the legislature into effect. William Patterson, the proponent of the rival New Jersey plan, rival to the Virginia plan, put forward by Madison, advocated this as well, a president who is elected by the legislature and jumps when and only as high as the legislature dictates. This essentially would be a parliamentary model where the majority of the members in the legislature determine the authority of the prime minister. But unlike the current parliamentary system in England, for example, the PM in the the way these framers were thinking about it would have been weak as water. Others, like Ben Franklin, thought there needed to be some leadership on top of the legislature, but they wanted a council of executives, not one, but a council to dilute the power of a single president, said Franklin. The first man put at the helm would be a good one. Nobody knows what sort may come afterwards. The executive will always be increasing here, as elsewhere, till it ends in a monarchy. Madison, George Mason, supported this idea of council, as did the backers of the New Jersey plan that rivaled the Virginia plan. It gets mixy and confusing because Virginia's Governor Edmund Randolph said that a single executive would be the fetus of monarchy. Now, Richard Beeman points out that Randolph served as governor of Virginia, the state from which Washington hailed. So he was pals with Washington. And yet, unlike the other delegates who were nervous about talking about the potential for tyranny in a single executive with Washington in front of them, Randolph had the guts to do that. A quick aside about the Constitution. Randolph had the guts and he had the imagination because this is a conversation about what might happen. The creation of the presidency was a leap of imagination because nothing in the delegates' past experience gave them a clear view of what the office would have looked like. Yes, they had the states to look to, but the states just ruled as governor over the affairs of the individual state. A president would rule over the affairs of a collective number of states. And not only did they have no view of what a president might look like, but Washington was occluding that view about what they needed because there was every encouragement to rely on his virtue and reputation in shaping the office he would hold. And they were fatigued by days and days of fighting over how to form Congress, how to solve the problem of big and small state representation, etc. So they would have had every excuse to just phone it in on the presidency. So the challenge for the delegates was imagining a presidency after George Washington. However, would a politician think creatively about what hasn't happened yet? Well, they do it by thinking seriously about human nature and political science. It's a good thing those founders had studied history and philosophy because it's where the leaps of imagination and creativity come from. We should remember this when we're deciding whether or not we want statesmen who have experience with these matters to make the kinds of decisions that are required to be made by statesmen. It's a leadership skill to imagine and then anticipate correctly the challenges and then corrective beneficial actions that will lead to favorable outcomes. 
We don't encourage much of this at the moment when we talk about presidents or question presidential candidates. How could we improve? Well, we'd make the candidates address hypothetical situations that would give us some sense of whether they can understand things have yet that have yet to happen. Or better yet, come have these candidates come up with a plausible hypothetical situation that they're likely to face and then give a solution to that hypothetical situation. Candidates are allowed to duck hypothetical questions for some reason in this current world, and that is folly. In this debate over a presidential council, Alexander Hamilton advocated most forcefully for a single executive. Energy in the executive is the leading character in the definition of good government, he said. It is essential to the protection of the community against foreign attacks, to the steady administration of the laws, to the protection of property, to justice, and to the security of liberty. The security of liberty. Obviously, the opponents to this way of thinking argued that the monarchy being courted by Hamilton's creation of a single executive challenged that idea of liberty more directly. It didn't protect it. It challenged it. Hamilton courted more harumps from the former revolutionaries because he'd also cheered the British model of government. Here's what Madison wrote about Hamilton talking at the convention. The British government, Madison reported him as saying, was the best in the world and that he doubted much whether anything short of it would do in America. As Ray Raphael points out in his book, Mr. President, for all of his love of the British system, Hamilton actually hadn't been born under the British crown as a child. Almost everyone else in the room had been. Hamilton had not. While Hamilton's affection for the British might seem odd, Raphael also points out that had the founders not been, or had they been asked to devise a constitution in 1760 before their quarrels with the mother country, they would no doubt have come up with a plan closely resembling the British model, which all agreed was the best in the world. So Hamilton wasn't crazy to think about the British model. Hamilton defended a single executive as, quote, far more safe because, quote, wherever two or more persons are engaged in any common pursuit, uh, this idea of a co-presidency or a council, there is always danger of difference of opinion. Bitter dissensions are apt to spring. Whenever these happen, they lessen the respectability, weaken the authority. Hamilton also argued that a single executive would be watched, quote, more narrowly and vigilantly by the people than a group of presidents, co-presidents, or a presidential council would be. The Virginia example of a council under the Articles of Confederation had not been encouraging. The Virginia governor could do nothing without the advice and consent of the council. This made for a weak executive. Edward Larson writes that Washington thought the framers of the Pennsylvania government had made its governor so weak, he questioned Franklin's decision to accept the post. The founders also discussed creating a president as a temporary dictator to get the mix right between action and avoiding tyranny. This would work as it did in the Roman Republic. During an emergency, a dictator served for a temporary period. He would lose power once the emergency had ended. Better a dictator in times of need, said Patrick Henry, than this American presidency. George Washington, thought Patrick Henry, offered not a model of how the job could be filled, but an example of how impossible it would be to fill in the future. A presidency could not be filled by a train of such men, he said. Washington then stood not as an example, as far as Patrick Henry was concerned, but as the exception that proves the rule. Henry made these remarks in the ratifying fight after the Constitution had been written. He didn't attend the actual convention. He'd been chosen to, but refused, commenting that he, quote, smelled a rat in Philadelphia, tending towards monarchy. 
Sinful men could not resist the temptations of power. Framers drew this conclusion based on recent experience with George III, but also, as Bernard Balin points out in the ideological origins of the American Revolution, the colonists also had other examples in mind. In Turkey, Denmark, Sweden, Poland, and Venice, despots had trampled freedom, in some cases in republics of the kind that they were toying with inventing in America. All the examples fueled a general theory that had been around since antiquity, that men couldn't handle power. It corrupted them, not just the weak ones, the jellyfish Joneses, all of them. Give a man too much power, and don't check it, and you'll find him banging away with the ball-peen hammer on liberty. As Lord Acton, the historian, famously said, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. The historian Henry Adams, writing during the Progressive Era, described power in exactly the same way in 1907. The effect of power and publicity on all men is the aggravation of self, a sort of tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies, a diseased appetite like a passion for drink and perverted tastes. One can scarcely use expressions too strong to describe the violence of egotism it stimulates. Professor of psychology Dr. Keltner examined this idea through scientific study. His findings in his book, The Power Paradox, center around this idea. Once we have power, we lose some of the capacities we needed to gain that power in the first place. A crucial such capacity? Empathy. In one study, subjects sat down in a face-to-face conversation with someone who described experiences that caused them suffering. Participants with a greater sense of power experienced less distress and compassion. Sukhavendra Abhi, a neuroscientist at McMaster University in Ontario, tested the brains of the powerful and not powerful and found that power, in fact, impairs a specific neural process called mirroring that may be the cornerstone of empathy. Neuroscientists determine that the brain literally changes when you are exposed to a lot of power. Keltner's conclusion is basic. Once we get a little bit of power, any human being, we tend to act like we're out of control sociopaths. You can really go down the rabbit hole with these studies in the famous Cookie Monster study, not to be confused with the marshmallow study. Three people were assigned a writing task. One was named Leader. After about a half an hour into their work, they were served cookies. Who took the fourth extra cookie? In almost all cases, the person who'd been made the leader took the cookie. And those brutes were more likely to eat with their mouths open and drop crumbs. Now, a caveat. How people behave with fresh power in a lab experiment doesn't replicate how people might act who have power and have become accustomed to it. History has few examples, though, of people who, when they have power, become more empathetic, though... As I write that and say that and think that, let's not hasten too fast. President Wilson was very much more empathetic about war and its costs after World War I. As you know from our League of Nations episode and Teddy Roosevelt, Lincoln, FDR, and LBJ all learned empathy from defeats. Defeats that were in part the result of and caused pain because of, if that sentence tracks, of their existing power. So in other words, they'd had a fall. Uh, from previous heights, or from at least the heights they were scaling. It's actually Doris Kearns Goodwin's argument for why those men were good leaders. More on this, though, later. Because for the purposes of our current narrative, the political class, we don't need to figure out what happens in the lab. The political class in the 18th century didn't need lab experiments. They held this view of human nature as fundamental. What turned power into a malignant force, writes Bailey, summarizing the body of thought in in that book, uh, Ideological Origins of the Revolution, 
was the nature of man, a susceptibility to corruption and his lust for self-aggrandizement. Massachusetts Samuel Adams believed, such is the depravity of mankind that ambition and lust of power above the law are predominant passions in the breasts of most men. Power converts a good man in private life into a tyrant in office. So the founders had this view about the inexorable connection between power and its corruption. And we talk a lot about norms in the presidency. Their daily droopy decline would scare the founders, given their beliefs about power and ambition. Men were sinful, power insatiable, and liberty fragile. So if a norm fell or separation of power broke, it invited a bad ending, just as certainly as throwing open the gate to the bunny rabbit pen would invite a bad ending. Wolves eat unattended bunnies. This is nature. The founders would have been puzzled by someone who delayed action on closing the door to protect the poor bunnies. Waiting for metaphysical certainty means you wait too long. Dead bunnies that encourage you to close the gate are not really useful if your goal is to keep the bunnies from being dead. So the founders would have been terrified by these norms falling. Anyone thinking about power in the late 18th century in America also thought about ambition. Ambition thirsted for power and made tyranny attractive for its owner as the top rung on the power ladder. If your American chief be a man of ambition and abilities, how easy it is for him to render himself absolute, said Patrick Henry. So that's the dark view. The more complicated, lighter view distinguishes between self-dealing ambition and ambition fueled by American values. Poet Alexander Pope arranged this idea into pretty words. The same ambition can destroy or save and makes a patriot as it makes a knave. He had that on his coffee cup. Presidential historian Doris Kurtz Goodwin illuminates this brighter form of ambition in her recent book on presidential leadership. I interviewed her for the CBS This Morning podcast, and she described Lincoln's ambition this way. It wasn't simply for himself. He was thinking about accomplishing something that would withstand the test of time. Lincoln said as a young man that his ambition was to win the esteem of my fellow man. In other words, to make himself worthy of that esteem. That's what norms do. They call you to your highest and best self. Others, Goodwin says, take a little longer to get there, to that connection between doing good and being ambitious. They start out with self-ambition, but, quote, at some point, a great leader transfers that ambition from self to a larger goal and hopefully to the country and maybe even history. So we should look for the balancing set of beliefs that drive a candidate or a leader's ambition. The system will check the ambitious leader, but some virtue in his bones would be nice too. And when there isn't virtue, it may be necessary to maintain the fictions of democracy and the presidency to haul a knave up to better behavior. Lyndon Johnson thought about himself and his well-being until his stomach acid could be heard across town. But he also believed, in other words, he was selfish, but he also believed that being well thought of could be accomplished through working on the behalf of others. So his route to self-aggrandizement was public service. So he promoted an idea of public service, and that idea is contained in this quote from him. You must never forget that fellow out in Omaha or Indianapolis or Denver. He has a wife going into the hospital for a cancer operation, a daughter he's trying to put through school, a boy on his way to Vietnam, car, car payments to be met, insurance premiums due, a mortgage hanging over his head, and his mother needing to go into a nursing home. 
When that fellow looks at the White House, he thinks the man there has it made, has everything in the world, and he's right. All my troubles put together aren't as big for a president as that little fellow's troubles are for him. We have to remember that. We have to remember that here in this house, no man who sits here can ever afford to think of himself first. Well, Johnson did think of himself first. But he often thought first of himself in the context of doing well for that man in Omaha. And it's that it's not that presidents are without ambition. It's not that presidents don't seek power. It's not that presidents don't overreach at times with power. They are naive curious, but they also can be in part through norms that they try to live up to and that hopefully are rigorously maintained. They can seek self-aggrandizement through maintenance and adhering to those norms. Now, as a final point on ambition, think about the ambition required to get elected these days. Think about how many months in a row a candidate must use the fire of that ambition to get through the handshaking and soggy sandwiches and the selfies at the state fair. Does this process sort for the massively ambitious and reward that titanium ambition with victory? Is it realistic to think of human nature as such that ambition can just be turned off when they get into the big job after spending so much time firing up that ambition to get there? Does the process sort for the overly ambitious? On the other hand, you could argue that the candidate can only get through that slog if he or she has a higher purpose. But if we think about how the founders stretched to create a system that weakened ambition or controlled it anyway, because ambition led to an abuse of power, it's hard to think of our current presidential contests and not conclude that we have a system that encourages ambition at its maximum level, in fact, requires it for victory, and how the founders would have been quite nervous about that. Once in office, how might a leader try to hide his ambitious grasp for power? By declaring war or declaring an emergency. The framers created the office to respond to a national security emergency like Shea's rebellion, but they feared a president would use emergencies just like that as a pretext to seize power. On that June 1st day, when the framers first started talking about the presidency, you remember it, they paused in front of George Washington. The very first words about executive power in the Constitutional Convention came from South Carolina's Charles Pinckney on this very topic of war. Let's go back to Madison, who has the call. Mr. Pinckney was for a vigorous executive, but was afraid the executive powers of the existing Congress might extend to peace and war, etc., which would render the executive a monarchy of the worst kind. So, Pinckney was for the executive, but not for an executive who had control over war. As Michael Beschloss writes in Presidents of War, George Mason wrote that he was, quote, against giving the power of the war to the executive because that branch was no safety to be trusted with it. James Wilson of Pennsylvania proclaimed that the Constitution will not hurry us into war. It is calculated to guard against it. The founders gave Congress the sole power to declare war and divided the responsibility to wage war between the executive and the legislative branches. As Abraham Lincoln wrote of their work, it was designed so that no one man should hold the power to take the nation to war. War is the parent of armies, said Madison. From these proceed debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the dominion of the few. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. In a letter to Jefferson, Madison wrote, Perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger 
real or pretend, from abroad. Let's read that again. Perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger, real or pretend, from abroad. Madison also labeled war the nurse of executive aggrandizement. Why am I piling up the war quotes from Madison? Well, as Michael Beschloss points out, Madison led America into the unnecessary war of 1812. That's how tempting the war-making power was, that it could captivate its greatest critic. And it shows that the provisions they agreed on in Philadelphia to keep the country from being hurried into war were not sufficient. These were not the only worries about the presidency to come. Vetoes, impeachment, and the disposition of the symbolism on George Washington's chair in our final episode. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'll have a fourth, and probably only a fourth, God willing, uh, in about a couple of weeks. We'd love to hear what you think. Boy, those reviews from the last pleading uh, really were a self-affirming bunch of letters arranged in uh, tidy sentences. Thanks for leaving those reviews in the iTunes store. Please feel free to leave others. Helps us spread the word, and it's affirming and um, uh, makes people feel good about all the work that we do here. And the work that we do here is produced by Jocelyn Frank. She's the producer of Whistle Stop. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our Whistle Stop crackerjack researcher and in-house historian. Brian Rosenwald is one of the editors in chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson is the master manager of all the research and the patient spirit in the Google document. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helped make the episode and all episodes happen here on the CBSN. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm John Dickerson of CBS News. I'll be back in a couple of weeks.